It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. I'm Will. And I'm Andrew. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you a budget special. The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt delivered his budget yesterday. The headline announcements include corporation tax rising from 19% to 25%, increases to the annual tax-free allowances for pension savings and the abolition of the lifetime pension savings cap, skills boot camps to encourage people in their 50s who have left their jobs to return to work, known as returnships, a three-month extension to the energy price cap, 30 hours of free childcare to cover one- and two-year-olds, scrapping work capability assessments for disabled benefit claimants and ramping up welfare sanctions, and tax breaks and other benefits for 12 new investment zones across the UK. The context of this was the Office for Budget Responsibility predicts the UK will avoid recession in 2023, and inflation is predicted to fall by the end of the year. But the economy will still shrink 0.2%, and on the day Hunt delivered his budget, doctors, teachers, civil servants and tube workers were on strike. So, Andrew, what was the politics of this budget? What was the government trying to do with it and how did it land? Well, the overall big politics is the grown-ups are back in charge. We're going to calm things down. We've got another year and a bit to remind you we, the Conservatives, can run things relatively effectively. Within that, it's I, I would say it's sort of... T- cross fingers touch wood kind of budget because although the OBR gives the Chancellor just enough wriggle room to say do you know what things are on course the doubters are wrong the British economy is coming back if you look at the range of forecasts we are in for a very very tough couple of years and the big problems of course for the Chancellor and the Conservative Party is what the OBR said about living standards the worst or tightest two-year squeeze in living standards since records began, coupled with the highest tax burden since the late 1940s and the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. So I think people will look at the headlines, they will read the individual measures, and I think we should talk about childcare in particular because I think that's really, really important in the context of a budget which is about trying to get more people back into the workforce. But I think people will, after they've read all of that, they'll ask themselves, how do I feel? How am I doing? And the likelihood is the answer will be pretty pretty negative, pretty bleak, which is why I think Keir Starmer sounded quite so confident and, and optimistic in his pessimism, if I can put it that way, politically, <laughs> towards the end of the budget speech. Well, do you think that it is tin then for Jeremy Hunt to be saying, you know, 
he talked a lot about stability. He said the plan is working. The optimists were right. The decliners were wrong. People, you, like you say, budgets are sort of retail moments, aren't they? People mm. watch them to see or watch the headlines of them to see what's in it for them. They're not going to be feeling that stability or that the plan is working. This was not a budget for public sector workers. That's mm. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, like Andrew said, it's relatively good news in the short term from the OBR in terms of just scraping away from from predictions of recession. But the long-term prospects for the growth potential of the UK economy is half what it was in the 10 years before the pandemic. And this was a relatively cautious budget that took some relatively small measures, necessarily, because it did need to be a kind of boring budget in relation to the Kwarteng episode. (laughs) But I guess the big question is, did it go far enough in addressing the systemic problems that will weigh on the economy in the long term? There is a technical aspect to this, which I'm sure Will understands much better than I do. But by the autumn and early next year, most economists tend to think that Jeremy Hunt will have a much larger amount of money to use to give away, if you like, than he has at the moment, because a fifth year of OBR predictions comes into play. Now, don't ask me to explain the details of that, (laughs) please. But the point is that this is also a kind of marking time budget to a certain extent. And I think we can expect a much more dramatic budget from the Chancellor, an extra budget later this year in the autumn, perhaps, or indeed about this time next year, ahead of a general election. And then the really big question is, what does he use that extra amount of money for? Does he use it to cut taxes, as the Conservatives still desperately hope? Or does he use it to actually buy off some of these strikes across the public sector to give public sector workers a little bit of the pay rise that they desperately need? Mm, Yes, so like a pre-election budget. Exactly. And does that really work? Because obviously there are a lot of tax rises snuck into this budget because of stealth tax rises. I mean, it's interesting to remember that Jeremy Hunt, when he ran for the leadership in 2019, he was talking about cutting corporation tax to 12%. You know, he was at the extreme end of the tax cutting spectrum and now is supporting the continuation of the rise to 25% and giving businesses tax breaks to do so. But yeah, in terms of workers, as you say, that, that he's frozen the thresholds, which amounts to a really significant rise in income tax. So those thresholds frozen to um, to the 2027, 2028 tax year amount to the same as putting an extra 4% on income tax, which would be, that's from the OBR's report yesterday. So that would be politically extremely difficult to get through a 4% rise in income tax, but that's what it amounts to. And when you look at people's marginal rates of tax, mm-hmm. as in the extra tax that they pay on a pound earned here and there, Those distortions are still there that mean that, you know, somebody who has, for example, three children and is earning between 50 and 60 grand a year has a marginal rate on the extra money they earn if they get a pay rise of about 68%. There's a distortion now with the free childcare benefit, which means that if you earn just under 100,000 a year, and you get a pay rise that takes you over that, you could lose up to £6,000 because you don't get the same benefit anymore. So, I mean, obviously, there will be a lot of people out there who will be playing the very smallest violin at the thought of people on six-figure salaries having to take a hit. But that is that is a measure that would discourage some people from 
perhaps doing the extra work that would take them over that pay level. And if those distortions exist, this, that, that this opposes This is nightmarish, growth. isn't it, for Tory MPs? Yeah, well, huge uh, tax rises. Picking up on what we're saying, the thought, this shows you how effective stealth taxes really mm. are. Because if Jeremy Hunt had stood up and said, you know what, I'm going to put 4p on the basic rate of income tax, every yeah. single front page of every newspaper would be printed in black ink <laughs> and saying this is the end of the Conservative Party. And yet it's happened effectively. And barely anyone has noticed. Yeah. And, it, and it buys him that fiscal headroom that you were talking about. Because mm. I think by the same year, by the end of the, the frozen period that's currently scheduled, it adds up to almost 30 billion a year in extra money for the Exchequer. Right. And so Tory MPs are willing to wear this. They haven't noticed or they haven't made a big thing about the stealth tax rises because they're willing to wait for next year or perhaps the end of the year for something a bit more juicy for them. What they're doing is they're looking at Rishi Sunak and they're looking at some of his recent successes, by which I mean particularly the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations and the opening again of warmer relations with the EU. And they're beginning to think, you know what, it's possible, it's just possible that this guy might not lose me my seat in the election. It's just possible that if I listen to them and I don't go mad and I don't rebel... I might actually hold my seat. And it's that sort of, as it were, intake of held breath at the moment, I think, inside the Conservative Party, right. that it explains partly what the, that they are putting up with things in the budget they really don't like. I talked to Simon Clark, who was, of course, quite prominent in the short-lived Liz Truss administration and has set up the Conservative Growth Group of MPs. They've had a, a big input into parts of this budget. He hates the idea of corporation tax going up like this, but he said, I just have to be restrained. I can't go too far. You know, I understand the political mood. The other thing we should say is that Rishi Sunak has been bringing in groups of Tory MPs face to face. He's been having literally hundreds of conversations under the radar quietly over the last few weeks saying, please don't rebel. I am your last chance and here's how we're going to do it. Right. Wow. OK. And in terms of what they're trying to do with this budget, it's getting people back into work. I was speaking to Brits on low incomes who depend on benefits yesterday to ask them how they felt about it. And they were telling me that actually sanctions and even incentives and the conditionality that they're building into the benefit system doesn't help because if you're not working and you're on benefits, most likely it's because you're disabled, you're ill or you have other responsibilities. You might have care responsibilities, for example. And so they were saying that this might not necessarily work and might make life more miserable for them, which can make you unwell and, again, less likely to work in the long term. Will, are any of these measures in the budget likely to get more people back into work? Well, possibly. I mean, I guess the reason that he is so focused on getting people back into work is that having people out of work, having people retire early, for example, is an inflationary pressure because it leads to a tighter labour market. So the more vacancies they are, the more bargaining power workers have for their wages. Therefore, that can push wages up higher. It is an understandable aim within the context of his big stated aim to halve inflation. But you can have all sorts of unintended consequences from doing so. Absolutely. And also on the other side, on the growth side, the fact that two fifths of adults in England are economically inactive. Two fifths yeah. is a huge problem for the government. If you want growth, you need to get people back into the labour market. I think the badly thought through bit of this was raising the lifetime threshold on pensions for relatively well-off people, the doctor's tax issue. Yeah. Because you can deal with NHS doctors, you can keep them in the workforce with a specific measure, as Rachel Reeves has pointed out, such as they used for judges. You don't need to have this big blanket measure, a billion pounds, which will allow the Labour Party to say these Tories with no money and nonetheless spending a billion pounds on very rich people. Yeah. So that bit 
intended to get people in their 50s to stay in the labour market, I think is badly thought through. But I think the childcare measures are very welcome indeed. And there are lots and lots of calculations or guesstimates, frankly, about how many women what would be back in the labour market would be working if they had access to more affordable childcare. But that could be a very large number of women, 700,000, a million right. women back in the workforce. So I think that is really significant. If that works, it will have a measurable effect on the entire economy. Yeah, because there are some questions over the childcare policy, even though it has been welcomed by most groups, because it juices up demand, but it doesn't necessarily give the supply that you need. And, you know, if you live... And not for another two and a bit years. And actually, yeah. it comes in fully only in 2025, I think. Yeah. And in terms of those pension relief measures, I think the OBR forecasts that those two measures that they introduced will increase employment by just 15,000 people at a cost of £47,000 per job. So is it just an expensive bung for the already wealthy, Will? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, I've actually seen another estimate, I think it's from the Resolution Foundation, that said it could cost £80,000 per job. Wow. The limit on the amount that you could put into your pension was brought in for two reasons. It was brought in to encourage people to save for a decent pension and it was brought in to stop people avoiding paying tax by dying and passing their pension on to their children and allowing people to get around the tax they would have paid on their income there. So actually removing it without addressing those quite significant concerns for a lot of other people in the economy could have some unintended consequences. And <laughs> Avoiding yeah. paying tax by dying <laughs> is a strategy which I hadn't considered. <laughs> it's why widely used I think <laughs> um, so in terms of you know how this looks to the general public will they see the fact that there's some tax relief for the very wealthy and not necessarily much for them aside from this childcare policy that we know will make a big difference to a lot of people's lives and of course the extension of the energy price cap to be honest, I don't think this is a budget that changes the political dial at all, right. really. They've got through budget week without any obvious huge disasters, and that's fine. But really, it's all about what happens to the economy over the next two years. It's about growth and it's about how people feel. And the OBR forecast is right at the top of optimism in terms of the predictions. You look at the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee assessment of where we're going, and it's really very bleak indeed. And most independent forecasters are between the two. So I don't think Jeremy Hunt knows what's going to happen to the economy over the next 18 months to two years, uh, nor does anybody else really, but it doesn't look good. And you can see Keir Starmer focusing on asking people, do you feel better or worse off than you did 13 years ago when the Conservatives came into power? And the statistical answer is worse off by quite a way. He's basically saying to people, whatever you do, don't forget Liz Truss, don't forget Boris Johnson, but above all, don't forget how you felt right at the end of the new Labour years when things just seem to be rosier and happier and you're more prosperous and you're more optimistic. Don't forget. Yes, well, this is the Reagan question. It's the question Reagan used. He said, do you feel better off than four years ago? I've been speaking to people in Labour about the use of this question. The reason they're so confident about it is even if inflation falls, it doesn't mean prices fall. It just means you're getting poorer, slower. So they know that people aren't going to feel better off anytime soon, which is interesting. Just before we get to the second half, you mentioned this earlier, Andrew, you know, there were sounds of protesters, people striking and marching outside of Parliament. 
so many of public sector workers were on strike yesterday and it seemed like a parallel universe. There wasn't anything in this budget for public sector pay. There wasn't an NHS healthcare workforce strategy. Um, There are some whisperings that there might be a deal with the health unions, but what about all of the other workers? This is the real big choice, I think, for Jeremy Hunt later in the year. This time round, he could say just about things had to be so tight, I couldn't possibly go out and give proper pay rises to all the people who wanted and need it. And that's just life, he said. You know, I have to be responsible. I have to be, I have to let the economy recover. And I mean, he used the word crash about Liz Truss, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. So he can just about get away with it. But as more money becomes available, as Will's explaining, then the big choice is this. Do you give it in tax cuts to the better off? Or do you actually use it for pay rises for public sector workers? And that is a choice which can't be forever delayed. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks, Will. After the break, we'll talk about what's missing from the budget and how Labour has responded. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So joining us for this second half of the podcast is Rachel Wearmouth, our deputy political editor. Hi, Rachel. And Andrew's shot off to go and, uh, I think, interview the Chancellor at some point. (laughs) So he'll hopefully report back on what he finds out. Rachel, how's Labour responded to the budget? I think they're making kind of similar points that they've been making for a while is that growth is very weak. There's nothing in there for public sector pay. The strikes are still ongoing and the overall economy is in a pretty difficult position. One of the main points that they're actually going to mount a parliamentary challenge to is changes to the pensions, which kind of basically just benefit 1% of the population near some of the higher earners. Um, And when you actually boil them down, amount to something similar to an inheritance tax cut, basically. And I think they're going to try and get that stopped in Parliament or bring some kind of amendment, I think, in the days ahead. Okay. And that's the big policy that they're saying they would reverse. Yeah. 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 That's the one thing that they say that they do very differently. In terms of some of the other policy areas, I think there's been a lot of talk over the last few days how this was basically the Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson's childcare plan and that they've shot their fox here at the last minute. I mean, I think that's to some extent true, but not entirely true. I think Bridget Phillipson gave a speech last week that says her plan is about broader reforms. It's about improving the quality of childcare and improving the sector for the workforce as well. But I think 
it's also fair to say that they're, they're a bit surprised that the Chancellor's spending some £4 billion, albeit after the next election, but yes. £4 billion on, on childcare reforms that they would otherwise have liked to have made a very central plank of their general election campaign. This is the thing they've been teasing us for a long time, that they've got this kind of flagship childcare policy in the style of Anthony Albanese in Australia, but they've never actually said quite what it is or how they'd fund it. And now this big plan has come out from government. But that's why I first thought. I, thought, I first thought this is going to be a pain for Labour, but actually it frees up money for them, doesn't it? If the Chancellor's chosen to spend this many billions of pounds on childcare, then it means that they've got that to play with to put their own policy together. I think that's right. And I think when you look at the broader picture, there's an awful lot of call for more state spending on all kinds of things. And this kind of brings the current government into the Labour Party space, really. Yes, it gives Labour a chance to outflank the government at some point before the next election. And it, it allows the opposition to talk about the quality of provision as it is and how it's got into that state. For example, really good policy from Jeremy Hunt is kind of giving these incentive payments to childminders, very different from childcare provision in a nursery. But they had before 2018, like twice as many leaving the profession as joining it because of the model of childcare that the government was bringing in with the subsidies. But also just because that job was just too expensive for them to do and they could get better employment doing something else. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of just solving a problem that was created since 2010, since the Conservatives came to power. So it gives the Labour Party a chance to make that argument as well, I guess. Right, OK. And Labour obviously have been trying to woo business to, you know, a successful extent in recent months. How have businesses responded to the budget? And do you think they could still be tempted by a Labour alternative? Obviously, there's this big headline of a nine billion pound business tax break from the budget, and I think you know, in terms of things like corporation tax, I think businesses won't necessarily be that put off by a rise to 25% because that's the headline rate, and the headline rate can often be quite misleading. The headline rate of corporation tax in the UK seems to have dropped by a lot since the 1970s, but actually, the amount of tax that businesses pay relative to their earnings, it has remained about the same because the tax base has got bigger. So the amount of stuff that is taxed has got bigger. And that has kind of shaped our economy, made it help to make us a more of a services economy because a company that, say, builds a new factory makes more use of reliefs. So having a higher headline rate and bringing in reliefs is generally a positive for business investment, which is sorely needed. So that that could be quite a good thing. But some of the other measures that I haven't talked about, you know, these these business investment zones for 80 million quid each might be quite a bit to you or I, but to a whole sort of business (laughs) district, that is peanuts, frankly. There are lots of other things that affect whether or not businesses invest in the UK, infrastructure, political stability, things like that. So in a way, (laughs) one of the more positive things about the budget, just being boring, being stable is, is quite good for businesses. All the businesses I've spoken to over the last few years have said one of the things that holds back investment is not knowing if the Minister or Secretary of State that you might be speaking to about regulation or the possibility of investment will still be in their job in three months' time. So just kind of wait and see. So there are measures that businesses will definitely welcome. There are other things that are not addressed business rates is probably the biggest one and VAT which is particularly relevant for small businesses so if you're a small business and your turnover is £84,000 a year you don't have to register for that if you're over 85 grand you do 
So there are a lot of businesses that grow to a certain point and then don't grow further, yeah. which which is not great for the economy. Well, yeah, let's talk a bit about what was missing from the budget. I was I, just the day before the budget, I was in Parliament with some Tory and Labour politicians who were saying that now is the chance to bring capital gains tax in line with income tax, which is seen as quite a common sense policy, but hasn't yet taken on by either the Labour Party as one of their policy proposals if they make it into government or by this government. There's been some disappointment that they didn't take that opportunity to raise revenue that way. Rachel, was there anything you noticed that was glaringly missing? One thing that certainly matters to businesses is their energy bills are about to go up massively because they're about to experience a cut in support of, what, about 85% at the end of this month. And I think there's obviously going to be a knock-on impact in prices. If you're, for example, if you've got a hairdresser, for example, and you've been struggling for the last couple of years and now all of a sudden your energy bills are about to go up and the dam breaks, that has a knock-on effect for customers. I think other things that are missing, just nothing on housing that I can recall. Public sector pay is the one that stands out for most people. And obviously social care. You know, this was supposed to be a get back to work budget. Or back to work budget. That sounds a bit like bossing the workforce around. But I mean, if you're, for example, a woman over 50, there's a very good chance that you're looking after your an elderly relative. So I just wonder how much mileage long term there is encouraging women to get involved in the workforce to, if we talk continually about closing the gender pay gap, only for them to get to the end of their career and for those things to be blown apart because of our social care system not working properly. And of course, the fact that our social care system is so stretched means Mm. that it affects the NHS in ways that is also keeping people out of work because they're waiting so long for treatment. Yeah, there was no investment in public services overall. Mm. And you have to wonder if if Jeremy Hunt is getting a little bit better at bomb disposal, because I think if you're looking ahead to a spring general election next year, why would he give out all the sweets now? Why wouldn't he try to space it out, try to make sure that he gets a maximum credit for everything that is in the economy that he's able to do between now and the next election? And um, in the meantime, we'll just suffer terrible public service. <laughs> well, quite, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that occurred to me was, that, I don't know whether you've spoken about or not, is the immigration numbers. No, we you haven't know. actually. And that yeah. was the last point that I wanted to bring in. So I'm ah, glad yeah. that you mentioned it there. Yeah. Great minds. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, if, so the OBR predicts what, 245,000? net migration in a year. I don't think Suella Braverman's going to put that on a bill anytime soon. And obviously there's a big difference between, you know, when we talk about illegal immigration Mm -hmm. and stopping the boats and the other kinds of people that are coming to the country to work. But the economy relies on immigration and that's a fact that is being underlined quite boldly by the OBR here. And when both parties get towards the next election and they're talking about our relationship with Europe and what kind of migration that we want, that just feels like it's becoming ever closer as something that they can't just can't avoid talking about it. Yeah, and and it has been quietly slipped in. It wasn't part of Jeremy Hunt's speech in the Commons, but what they have done is added construction workers to the shortage occupation list, which means that the visa rules are much looser and so you can bring in more workers from abroad to come and do those kind of jobs. Not something clearly that he wanted to announce in in front of his party, but this has been going on Basically, ever since the EU referendum, we actually have higher mm-hmm. net migration now than we did before the vote, which isn't something that they were suggesting when they were running the Leave campaign and making promises about controlling the borders and things. And of course, there is a distinction between what's going on with asylum seekers coming across the channel. But it kind of feels like the sort of legal migration side is being much more liberal and loosened up while they're trying to use the tough rhetoric on other kind of incomers yeah, to and try that, and make themselves still sound tough. Yeah, and I guess that's what I mean by bomb disposal. 
Asuela Bravman talks about terrible language about an invasion of our southern mm. coast, but then on the other hand, the, yeah. the, the actual actions of the government is liberalising immigration for construction workers yeah. because it's required and that's entirely popular with some voters, required for the economy. But mm. That is it, is bringing in cheaper workers for the house, right. house building industry. Yeah. Mm. Not something that he is proud to announce. Okay, thank you so much, both of you. I think we got through a lot there and we will be obviously unpicking the implications of this budget as it plays out. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Anoush. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Will Dunn, Rachel Wearmouth and Andrew Marr. We'll be back on Monday. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Mae Robson. <laughs>